Good evening and welcome to the pastor's class as we finish up our series in uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We started this series back really at the end of the spring going into the summer and we've walked through this all the way through uh, the summer and as we look into the fall we're going to finish the end of 2nd Thessalonians. Really, If you have your Bibles there turn to 2nd Thessalonians 3. We'll finish the end of that tonight. And then we'll look towards maybe a couple weeks from now, uh, two weeks from now, we'll start back up with a Awana at Home and all our ministries happening on Wednesday night. So still be looking for these videos. Uh, we'll, start, we'll still have pastor's class. And so we'll start all that back up two weeks from today. And so we'd love to have you to continue to tune in with us as we launch into the fall after Labor Day weekend, looking towards a semester of studying online together. And so this will be our last study here, like I said, in 2 Thessalonians 3. You do have the handout there with you as well to walk through uh, the, this text. And we'll, we'll be in verses 6 all the way through the end of the chapter. And uh, this end of the book talks about Christian accountability. Christian accountability. How we hold each other accountable as believers. And there are issues happening as healthy as this uh, church is. And through, throughout the letter, Paul's been really encouraging uh, to the Thessalonians. He's looking to them and saying, well, there are some folks that have stopped working and become a burden to the church, and you need to hold them accountable. So if you look at the main idea there on your handout, Christians have an obligation to hold one another accountable for how they pursue their work and how they relate to one another. So, so there is a burden on us as Christians to hold each other accountable. One of the dangers in the Christian life oftentimes and as we try to pursue Christ isn't always the people that are far out there in the world pulling us down. Oftentimes, it's the person that's next to us. If they are, we're treating them like a brother or sister in Christ. If they're not walking with God, those people closest to us can have an impact on the church or our walk with the Lord. Let me illustrate it this way. If you've ever uh, been running and you're running with another person or walking with another person, the people that most impact your walking are not the ones who are walking or running way faster than you or walking or running way slower than you. It might be that person who's standing next to you walking and walking just slightly faster. And what that causes you to do is speed up just a little bit. You, you feel like you got to keep up. Or maybe you're walking to somebody who walks just a little bit slower. You, it, it just kind of pulls with you. And so most time for us in our Christian walk, the people who are far out there and far from the Lord, they're not the ones who are impacting us. Uh, or the people that, for, for some reason, that are not near us in our walk with the Lord, it's the people that are real close, but somehow walking slower or pulling us down. So, so we need to be careful about the Christian company that we keep. Look at the warning there in verse 6 that he gives. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. You should keep away from somebody who, notice what it says, uh, from any brother, anybody that you might consider a Christian, somebody who's considered a part of the church, but they're, they're walking in idleness, or we'll find out here in a minute, it's sin. They're not walking with the Lord. And he's saying, you need to separate yourself from these people. Now, now he's not telling him he, you can't have anything to do with them. But he is saying you need to create some distance between people who are not walking with the Lord and people that are. You should keep your closest friends. Uh, they should be godly people. So l- let me uh, apply this a little bit before we look at the text and think about some of the people we keep close to us. But, but your best friends in all the world, they should be Christians. They, they should be people that are uh, pursuing Christ. You're, I would even say this as you think about um, finding a person to marry. Those people that are closest to you, you the person you're going to marry is going to be the closest one to you. You want a Christian that's pursuing Christ. Uh, you you want to, if you're a college student and maybe not able to do this now, but you're picking a roommate or somebody to live with. You want somebody pursuing Christ. You want people close to you following Christ because these Thessalonian believers, for whatever reason, they had quit working. They had started to freeload on the believers that were in the fellowship there. So, you know, the book talks a lot about the coming of Christ. And so one of the theories that why they had stopped working was because they thought Christ was coming soon. And so why bother working right now? And so they stopped being able to provide for themselves. And so Paul wanted to say, no, 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 you need to keep working. Or, or, or some of them, maybe they were just poor members of the church, people that didn't have much, and they, they kept taking advantage of those who were generous in the church body because we're supposed to take care of each other. But there's this warning about believers who are not willing to work taking advantage of other Christians. And the Bible even would question if they're true believers. Because this passage, while dealing with laziness and work, also deals with the topic of church discipline. How we as a church confront sins inside of the church. And so, in all of this, we want to walk through just a few things that this passage confronts in Uh, that might be occurring in the Christian body that we should hold accountable to other people. And the first uh, way that we should hold people accountable is to not be lazy. Don't be lazy. This is verses really 6 through 10 that talks about this. Because in the Bible, it talks about work more than you might think. Colossians 3 talks about working as unto the Lord. You're going to give everything you have. And there's a reason for that, because what you spend the majority of your time doing is working. At your job, you spend working to the glory of God. Not for men, but for the Lord. So your job, whatever your work may be, you you shouldn't be lazy, but you should work for the Lord. And so there's a few ways in which we should look at our work being for the Lord and not being lazy. So the first 
sub-point, if you have your notes there, is we should be informed by the truth. You see, the Word of God informs this to us. Notice what he says there in verse 6. We'll start halfway through verse 6. That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not, what is he not doing, in accord with the tradition you received from us. He's Paul saying, listen, we've already taught you, we've exampled this, and we've taught you this from the Bible, that you should work. You should be willing to work hard with your hands and to lead a quiet life for some of the things he said to him. So now he brings this back up again. He says, look, we've talked about this. I've told you to work with your hands. I've told you to lead a quiet life. I've told you to, to stick with this. And now you need to stick with the tradition we've already laid out for you. As we spend a lot of our lives working, we spend a lot of time, uh, whether um, it's making phone calls to make sales or building widgets or selling widgets, it's, uh, maybe it's hammering a nail or whatever you are called to do, you're you're doing the Lord's work in that moment. How you approach your job matters to the Lord because He cares how hard we work. And He warns against not working hard, laziness. So we should be challenged not only by the tradition that was taught here, but we should be challenged by the example of others. You know, Paul gave an example of this. He he lived this out. Look there with me uh, in verse 6. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to, and notice what he says here, he says, imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So we, we don't be lazy because it's been taught as a tradition. But also another reason not to be lazy is because it's been an example of how even Paul lived among these believers. He said, when you saw our lives, you could see we worked hard. We weren't lazy with our lives. And maybe you know of somebody like that in your life that you could look to and see they worked hard as unto the Lord. They they were a hard worker. That was something that I'm just thankful for my parents. I think of my mom and my dad and my dad in particular. I just when I think of my dad, I think of hard work. I think of someone who was there wasn't a question of can I do that or can I stick with this? It just dad just kept working and working hard. That's what he knew to do, and that's what was an example for me. So I understand what you do as a Christian man is you work hard. You, you live that out. So I'm thankful for the Lord gave me an example of a Christian man who worked hard. And I, I think that's what we ought to be able to look around and see somebody that has a good godly work ethic, and we ought to work hard like they do. So don't be around lazy Christians. You should be around hard-working Christians. And just like you might think teenagers are impacted by peer pressure, and you say, why teenagers around somebody else and then their peers impact them, the same way we are as adults. We, we need people around us that help pace us as we run, as we 
pursue Christ. So we need people that are working hard, pursuing the Lord, giving all they have so that we might do the same thing. So who do you know that works hard for the Lord? And you should put yourself next to them. And just a distinction, make sure you put yourself next to godly hard workers because there are plenty of worldly hard workers. But you want to be somebody who works, be around somebody who's working unto the Lord. So you need to be looking to an example. You, you ought to be an example yourself. You ought to be a person who people could look to and say, I want to work like they work. And so don't be lazy because there's a tradition of that. Look back in the Bible and also because there's these examples of people that are working hard. And we ought to have people in the Bible we look to, but also people just around in our lives in the church. We can say, I, I work hard just like they did. Here's the second thing. We, we not only should, shouldn't be lazy, don't be lazy, but we shouldn't be a burden. Don't be a burden to others. The Lord doesn't want us to be burdens to other people. And there's a distinction here as we get into it between receiving help in the body of Christ and becoming a burden. You should work to earn your own living. Now let me show it to you in the text and then we'll talk about it. Look at verse 11 and 12. He said, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So you're doing a lot of stuff in the church, but you're not actually, you're, you're busy kind of taking from people, busy bodies, but you're not actually working, you're idle. Now such persons, we command you, notice what he says, and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ Here's what you should do. They should do their work quietly and earn their own living. As a Christian, you are responsible to earn your own living. You should work to do this. Now, I understand there are times where you lose a job or medical bills pile up and there are moments that things become difficult and the body of Christ steps in and takes care of its own. And I am so thankful for that. And over the years as a pastor, I have gotten to witness so many different times in which that has occurred, which the body of Christ takes care of its own. However, there comes a point from taking care of someone in need temporarily or long-term because they cannot do anything and someone becoming a burden. See, we as Christians, we strive to work as hard as we can. So that means you ought to be able to ask yourself, as I provide for myself, am I really working as hard as I can? You ought to be working hard to take care of yourself. And to press it further, I think this is probably the, the greater temptation is and I'll take kind of this phrase, earn your own living, is you ought not live above your means. It, it, meaning that you should live what you earn. I know it's not a perfect world. I know not everybody makes the same amount. But you should be able to say, I'm going to live within the means the Lord has given me so that 
I'm not going out there, as this passage will say, taking from people and not able to pay them back. In other words, incurring debts you can't pay, whether that's with other Christians or whether that's out with a credit card. You ought not take a debt that you are unable to pay. And so as Christians, we should live within that. And then we ought we just ought to make sure that our standard of living matches that whatever we've been provided. And so as we walk through, and again, I, it's not a perfect principle. I'm not trying to say that every time somebody takes a credit card or I, I can't make that call. Here's what I think you need to ask the Lord. Am I following this passage, earning my own living? You need, within your conscience, need to make a decision. Am I being a burden on others, or am I genuinely earning my living within the body of Christ? So this doesn't mean that we don't need help at times. I mentioned that a moment ago. Part of the body of Christ is to help each other. However, we should not be a burden on other Christians long-term, because we're called to earn our own living. So don't be a burden. Here's a third um, thing the, the Bible holds us accountable to with our work is we, sh we shouldn't grow weary. Don't be weary. Now, most of us, uh, when we read this verse, I've, I've been familiar with this verse for a while, but when you read it in context, it changes maybe some of the meaning you initially take. Um, let me read it with you in verse 13. It says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And so, you think, I shouldn't grow weary in doing good. I need to stick with what the Lord has called me to do. And so I just need to continue with doing good things. Like, and, and that's a right principle. It just may not get at the heart of what this text is talking about. Because it is easy to tire of doing the right things. But there's one right thing that this text is speaking about. It's the patient walking with believers and holding them accountable. So sometimes we're giving and giving, and then all of a sudden we need to hold other believers accountable. And we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but I at least want to pause for this moment because he's going to say, he's going to talk about how you need to pull back from some of these idle believers and you need to take note of them and distance yourself from them. This is church discipline and accountability. And that's what we don't need to grow weary from. Conflict is tiresome. It's hard to confront somebody about something. And to do it in a kind, loving, Christ-like manner. It's easy to walk up and just throw a bomb out there and say, deal with it and walk away. But that's not what we're about doing. We're doing this kind-hearted, patient, loving confrontation of sin. So don't grow weary doing it. Now, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like in a moment, but just in the back of your mind, think it's a tiresome task, and the Bible calls us to be patient and enduring as we walk through that. The fourth area that we must, uh, as Christians, hold each other accountable, and this one talks about accountability, is we shouldn't be negligent. Don't be negligent. You shouldn't let sin slide. We as Christians should take our holiness seriously. We, we need to 
confront sin when it shows up. And so inside of the church, uh, in the New Testament, a concept maybe we don't talk about a lot is accountability and church discipline. It's a serious idea of how we need to hold each other accountable. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18, where he talks about one person going to a brother, and then if they don't return from their sin, then several go, and then church leaders go, and then you've got the church confronts them in sin. You even see it in 1 Corinthians 5, where there's someone in sin in the congregation, and they're called, he says, call them out in front of the whole church. They need to be confronted about the sin that they're in. And strangely enough here, in this, these few verses at the end of 2 Thessalonians 3, he, he wants people that are idle in their faith to be confronted because he believes church discipline is vital to the health of the church. In the book that we've been walking through, Christ-Centered Exposition, he quotes Tom Schreiner on this subject. I'd like to read it to you. He says, Discipline is necessary so church retains its purity and power. If sin is tolerated in the community, the difference between the church and the world is erased. If the church's purity is compromised, then the message of the gospel is diluted, the message of salvation and the glory of God are besmirched. See, this is crucial that we hold each other accountable. One of the reasons that sometimes people look at the church and say, church is full of hypocrites, is because we've allowed way too many people to stay in the church without being confronted about sin. I, I know we desire to see people saved, to come through and join our church. However, if we just allow anybody to come in and join our church, and no matter how they live when they're a member of our church, we are not willing to confront them, then our church could easily be filled with people who are not believers. They're not followers of Christ. And so we as Christians then are called to confront sin so that the purity of the church will be preserved and the witness of the church, as Schreiner just said, to the world will be held right. And so when the world looks at the church, they, they see true believers and followers of Christ. See, church discipline is actually uh, has a huge impact on our witness to the world. It matters how they see the church when we keep the purity of church uh, clean and right. So there are three principles found here in regards to church discipline. I'd like to walk through them uh, fairly quickly with you here. The first one is we should hold fast. When we do church discipline, we're holding fast to the Word of God. I, I, I mentioned this earlier, the tradition. So look at verse 6 again. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. You see, the Word of God is what is being passed down here. So when we look back here, we're actually, for Paul, he's speaking about God-inspired uh, tradition handed to them. So when we look back now, we're, we're simply just looking at the Bible. The tradition handed to us is what, what we measure things by. So we're not just, you know, hunting down anybody who doesn't do whatever we don't like. We're looking to confront people who are violating clear biblical principles. So let me talk a little bit about what church discipline actually might look like. So why, when would you confront somebody with sin. When would that happen? Because we sin all the time. So how would I differentiate who I confront and who I don't? 
There's three words that typically help define how we do that. The first one is that the sin is outward, meaning that it is visibly played out in their life. So we can't really confront on pride because pride happens inside. We, we can't quantify that. But if a person is being unfaithful to their spouse, that is an outward, it's a clear um, action that we can call sin. So there's the first one. The second way which we would define uh, sin that's worthy of discipline, not only outward, but it would be serious. This is a sin that is fairly serious in nature. I like the example I gave, being unfaithful to your spouse is, the, is a typical one we might confront. Here in this passage, it's, uh, it's serious enough that it's taking advantage of and disruptive to the body of Christ. So notice that even the sin here in um, 2 Thessalonians 3, it's they're taking from people and it's outward. People can view it. It's, it's quantifiable. You can tell it. And it's serious. It's impacting the whole church. I mean, people know about this. It's, these people are not working and becoming a burden on other uh, believers. And then the, the third one is that, that they must be unrepentant. They, uh, it's, we as Christians, we're going to sin. But the mark of a Christian is that when we sin and we're confronted with that sin, we turn from that sin. But a person who doesn't repent of their sin, then uh, the Bible calls for us to have stronger accountability. So these uh, believers or brothers, people that we would, they would believe are a part of this church, who may or may not be Christians, as they're confronted, it, evidently it's not working. So Paul's saying you need to pull back from them. There's a level of removing community with them. So the, the last little piece, so outward, serious, um, and unrepentant, I think biblical is a key component as well. We're only going to discipline those that violate the tradition, the Bible that we hold to. And so th those are kind of some key ways that you would look at church discipline, how we hold each other accountable. Here, here's another thing. We hold fast. We also uh, take note and keep away. Take note and keep away. Notice the phrases there. We'll start back in verse 6 again. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother. So the Bible's actually calling you for you to pull back from somebody. Look at verse 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, so they're writing under the inspired word of God. This letter is coming. We look at today as God's word. If anybody's not willing to obey God's word, you take note of that person, and then you have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So, Take note. This means that uh, you are willing to sit down with this person and make a point about it. We're going we're gonna to take note on this. It's not that we're just going to ignore them. We're going to pull away. You're actually going to sit down with this person and say, here is the sin. And then when they are unrepentant of that sin, you then pull away. So this moment to take note of the person who's um, committing this sin. And then the Christian is, to call, is called to pull away from having anything to do with this person. Now, that doesn't mean they can't 
talk to them. It just means they're no longer treated like family. This means that you are the benefits of being a part of your Sunday school class and you being willing to take care of whatever need and jumping in and treating them like a brother and sister in Christ, those benefits are gone. You, you no longer see them as a part of the body. And so this is what church discipline means, and this is where the term excommunication comes from. You remove excommunity from them. You're taking that away. You're excommunicating them. You're taking them out of your family community for a purpose. The, the purpose here is that the, the, the it preserves the church, there's a level at which the church now is preserved in its purity. But, but it also, it's, it's there to discipline the individual. N notice what it says, that he may be ashamed. They're supposed to feel this so that there will be some sort of warning light. Hey, you're in sin. It needs to be fixed. See, the worst, this is where sometimes we fail people because we want to be nice. We, we see somebody in sin. But we want to keep on treating them like family. They get all the benefits of family. But the Bible has built in, as a part of the church, the way in which that person's going to feel shame is the removal of that Christian fellowship. It's, it's a biblical concept. You're reading it right there with me. The, the way God is going, to is going to confront a person in their sin, what he's going to use the church, is to remove the fellowship so they might feel shame over their sin and then turn. That's the, that's the built-in mechanism. So if you genuinely love the person and want to see them turn, you're going to remove, you're going to keep away, as the Bible talked about there, so the person might feel this shame. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean you can't talk to them. This just means you say, I know you're in sin, so now we're going to create a little distance in our relationship. We're not going to be as close as we once were. You're, you're no longer a part of the family. And that means, here it means the obligation to take care of a brother and sister in Christ is gone. You, you're not going to provide financially like you once would have uh, for this person. That's what he's saying here. Quit, quit giving them money. They're not working. So they don't get money. They don't. He, he said it. If you don't work, you don't eat. So it's not a hard and fast rule. There are people we need to pay and take care of them. But for these unrepentant individuals, accountability is what's needed in their life. Um, now keep two things in mind here. They are not repentant. And this leads to uh, the third point here is that we are seeking registration. Restoration. We're seeking restoration. We want to see this relationship restored. That's why that last sentence is there. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You ought to approach any sort of accountability and church discipline with the hope and the goal of restoration. That's why we do it with great patience. That's why we do it with great love. That's why we, you know, there's a couple of dangers we run into with this when we don't see restoration. Sometimes we don't actually believe the person is going to repent. 
So we soft pedal our confrontation. We sell it so short. We make it to where there's really no hard edges to our confrontation and that the relationship's going to be just fine after we tell them that they're in sin. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. So we shouldn't reduce our confrontation to where it's just basically, hey, you probably should change this, but I'm still going to treat you completely the same. Because the Bible doesn't call us to do that. Sometimes we need to, in love, pull back and not grow weary of doing that. So some of us are good at kind of soft peddling. We, we, won't, we won't truly confront it. But the other side that I think we run the danger of is we think, well, I got to do it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself up and going. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to tell them. And you, you, you go in and you give it full speed. And instead of soft pedaling it, you are overly harsh. Without the goal of any sort of restoration, you're going to drop the mic, walk away, we're done with this conversation. But that's not, that's not the goal either. Probably the hardest thing is to strike the medium. Not soft pedal it and not, not be overly harsh, but just in kind, patient, Christ-like love, say, you're in sin. What you're doing, I believe, is wrong. I love you. I want to be your brother or sister in Christ. But I can't keep walking this way with you as long as you're in that path of sin. And you say it over and over and over again. You are kind and loving in the process. You even are generous over the time. You might give them money for a little bit longer. You might keep taking care of them, but that's going to dry up. And in your kind, patient love, your heart is not as, as it says here, they're not an enemy of you. They're like a brother. They're somebody you really want to see restored in the faith. That's the goal. The whole goal, this whole conversation about accountability, church discipline, and restoration is that you would see people that are caught up in sin, restored to holiness in Christ. So if you genuinely love a brother or sister in Christ, you'll confront their sin. The easy thing to do is to be at peace. The easy thing is to not have the conflict. But you'll speak about their sin, but you'll do it in the most Christ-like, loving way that beckons them and calls them to want to repent and to turn from their sin. And this all leads to kind of his conclusion to the whole book. So I'll sum that up in one phrase. We shouldn't be, or to don't be, forgetful. He knew they would forget of the great benefits of the Lord. We, our minds, we, we forget. But he wanted him, them to remember. As they knew they were stepping into persecution, they were going to be facing difficulties ahead. Look at what he, read, what he says to them in the last couple of verses as he ends the book. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with you, with my, to you with my own hands. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Notice he says it so many times grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, that the Lord of peace himself gives you peace in every way, and that the Lord be with you all. He knew the Lord was going to be the one with them to carry them through, and this peace would carry them no matter what they faced ahead. He knew that would be the key to whatever, uh, to their faithfulness to the Lord in the days ahead. 
So let me pray for us as we conclude this uh, study. We, are, we, th we thank you for all of you who have been a part of walking through First and Second Thessalonians with us. And we pray it's been a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray for your church and that we as members of the body of Christ would be faithful to work hard and to serve you, not be lazy, not be burdens to others. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't grow weary of seeking holiness, of calling um, accountability in the lives of other Christians with the goal of them being more like Christ. Help us to do it in a humble and loving and Christ-like manner so that your church might be pure and holy and represent you here on earth in a way that people might desire to be a part of the church because it's so different. It's so wonderful and joyful because they can see the difference, the Holy Spirit and the difference that Christ makes on our lives. And so use us, Lord, now to be a light to the world uh, by purifying your church. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.